This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss whether your medications are causing or contributing to dementia with geriatric pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll learn all about excitotoxicity with wellness researcher David Nelson, ND. We'll find out about the treatment of migraines with Dr. Ian Finkelstein. And lastly, we'll talk about creating a thriving workplace with workplace expert Laura Putnam. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Many people who have dieted are familiar with the yo-yo effect. After the diet, the weight is quickly put back on. Researchers from the Max Planck Institute for Metabolism Research and Harvard Medical School have now shown in mice that communication in the brain changes during a diet. The nerve cells that mediate the feeling of hunger receive stronger signals so that the mice eat significantly more after the diet and gain weight more quickly. In the long term, these findings could help develop drugs to prevent this amplification and help to maintain a reduced body weight after dieting. Can something as simple as a cup of coffee with milk have an anti-inflammatory effect in humans? Apparently so, according to a new study from the University of Copenhagen. A combination of proteins and antioxidants doubles the anti-inflammatory properties in immune cells. The researchers hope to be able to study the health effects on humans and have a few cups of coffee in the meantime. Common wisdom suggests that a core difference between solitude and loneliness is choice, whereas a person who appreciates solitude might choose to enjoy a quiet night or a solo trip abroad. A lonely person may feel disconnected from other people, even in a crowded room. New research published in Psychological Science supports this notion suggesting that lonely people may think differently regardless of the size of their social networks. I'll be joined by Andy Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, Canada's only online clinical pharmacy. He's active in his profession, serving on several committees, including the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario's Ontario Dementia Care Alliance, and he is the Prescribe It Pharmacy Ambassador for Canada Health Infoway. The Health Depot Pharmacy is an online clinical pharmacy providing free, no-obligation consultations. 
They'll meet with you to discuss your medications and answer your questions and deliver your prescriptions free anywhere in Ontario. For more information, visit thehealthdepot.ca to learn more. Welcome to the show, Andy. How are you? Good to be back. Thanks, Jamie. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. So, you know, when you pitched this idea to me, it's like one of those things where like I was wondering if you were being hyperbolic. The notion that, you know, drugs that are being prescribed to people who are older may actually contribute to or cause dementia is really kind of startling. Without further ado, uh, <laughs> let's dig in. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Very important topic. It's a bit of an eye opener for a lot of people. Yeah. So I understand Health Depot recently announced a new partnership with the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario. Why is that partnership important and what effect can medications have with dementia? Well, it was pretty open into Alzheimer's Society of Ontario as well. This partnership is very crucial because we have a medication problem in Canada. There's two big major problems with regard to medications in older adults, seniors over the age of 65. The first one is that we're taking too many medications, and just in stats with the Canadian Institute of Health Information show that two-thirds of seniors are taking five or more meds, a quarter are taking 10 or more, and one in 12 are taking 15 or more medications, a whole mitful at that point. But the second problem, which is the big one uh, that, you know, Alzheimer's Society is really keyed in on, it's just not taking too many meds, but we're also taking the wrong type of medications. As, believe it or not, this is kind of shocking, the stat, a third of all senior hospital visits in Canada, one in three seniors that walk through an emergency room door, are directly due to them taking a, a potentially one potentially inappropriate medication. And it's unfortunate that at least about 31% of seniors today, over the age of 65, are taking one of those medications every single day. Okay. So You got my attention. I'm not over 65, but I have plenty of loved ones and people that I know that are. How do we know whether they are taking some of these problematic medications? Is there a list somewhere where we can look it up? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first resource would be go talk to your pharmacist. They can help out. They can definitely help out to identify the meds for you. There is a list. You have to kind of hunt through Google to find it, but it's called the Beers List Medication. Beers List, just like um, the alcoholic beverage. <laughs> absolutely. But it's a 21-page document of medications that are unfit to be taken and unsafe to be taken by anyone over the age of 65. It's just that they cause a lot more problems in older adults. They're also medications that I'll be quite frank, like younger adults, they cause more side effects and issues. It'd be ideal to not be on those medications either, right? It'd be better for your whatever condition you're being treated with to have a medication that causes less side effects and it's more likely to be agreeable with you. Who created the list? Multiple different organizations, like uh, in Canada, United States, Oregon, there's multiple different criteria. The beers list, the gentleman's name was Beers, who created the oh, list okay. originally. But there's a lot of other criteria, like something called start-stop criteria as well for certain medications that are unsafe. But it's generally a, just a list of medications that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be on a medication. It's just that there's a much safer alternative that could be taken to treat the same condition. Okay, so... I know like if I get a prescribed medication, the pharmacist, you know, no matter who it is, is going to draw my attention to the document that is like attached to the little bottle or, or whatever, which indicates, you know, all the possible side effects and, and potential interactions. Is the beers list any different than that? Or is it just an aggregate of those? Yeah, it's, it's an aggregate of all the worst of the worst drugs that can cause a okay. lot of issues, particularly as we age. 
So whether or not it's that they get into the brain a little more and cause some more side effects, or they have issues on dementia, causing dementia, or other different conditions that they, they generally can have. Every medication we put in our body has a pro and a con, right? So it can help us yeah. uh, improve our condition, but they also can go around our body and bind where they're not supposed to and cause an unwanted side effect. That's what it's kind of like a game of musical chairs. If the drug doesn't right. sit in the right chair, it goes sit in the wrong chair somewhere else, then it, it can cause an unwanted side effect. And it's generally the meds that are most problematic and causing ill effects in our body, especially as we age, that are on that list. So let's sort of explore that a bit more. Are there examples of inappropriate classes of medications that are particularly bad for older adults? Let's talk about what these drugs are. Absolutely. So, I mean, we'd be here all day long if we went through all of them. It's 21 pages. Sure. But one of the ones that is the worst, especially for dementia, is a class of drugs that causes most of the side effects that older adults complain of. So urinary incontinence, which is bladder control problems, right? If you have issues with your bladder, constipation high heart rates, dry mouth, dry eyes, risk of falls, dizziness, blurred vision, confusion, and restless sleep is all side effects caused from one single class of drugs, which is probably one of the worst ones, that can cause dementia called anticholinergic drugs. So, okay. And what anticholinergic drugs are, what they do in our body, it's kind of confusing because they're not an actual class of therapeutic class of drugs. It's actually a class of drugs that how it reacts in our body. So it can come from all different uh, therapeutic classes, such as uh, heart disease, medication, diabetes meds, can all be a part of this class of drugs. So what it means is anticholinergic, it blocks our ability to use acetylcholine, a neurotransmitter, a very important signal molecule in our body that our muscles often need to use to contract. And it's also used for other processes in our body as well. Well, by doing so, it also can block important signals in our brain that can have a negative effect over time on memory and learning. So they block our ability to specifically have REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, which is dream sleep, what helps us to have dreams. And everything in our body has a purpose, right? Dream sleep in particular is useful as it helps us to consolidate new memories and learning. So if these drugs over time can block that, it can have a profound impact on making new memories, but also recalling old ones. And believe it or not, they found in studies, uh, they've done this over the last 10 years, they uh, found that even taking one of these anticholinergic drugs on a daily basis for three years. So some patients we see are on, uh, been on medications for 20, 30 years, and the dose hasn't even changed. But just taking one anticholinergic drug for three years, you're 50% more likely to develop dementia. And the same and other studies found that even if you take one anticholinergic drug for three years as well, that you're 63% more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease over time. Oh, so God. showing significant increases in the likelihood of having cognitive deficits as you get older. So are you aware, are patients being warned about this potential risk when these drugs are being prescribed? Because it sounds to me like if you're saying it's not a particular, it's not really a class of drugs, but it, these are common drugs that are being prescribed to people over 65, like shouldn't they know that? It's been an unfortunate that these, a lot of this research has come in the last 10 years, and medications have been around for like a, around 100 years. And often in our healthcare system currently, meds are being prescribed by doctors who unfortunately don't go to, when they go to school, doctors focus on diagnosing conditions and healthcare procedures. That's the bulk of the most important part of our healthcare system is knowing what's wrong with you. They learn very little about medications. They know what medications are the top ones for helping to treat 
the positive aspects of a condition, right? Lowering your blood sugar and things like that. But often a lot of the education to primary care physicians and whatnot doesn't focus on the negative, the bad of, of medications. And a lot of the stuff we're just finding out in the last 10 years. So a lot of it has gone unnoticed. And these lists are identifying medications that seniors over the age of 65 shouldn't be on, but they might have started on this medication back in their 40s as well. And they've been on it for 20, 30 years at this point. So there needs to be a whole re-education on this. And that's why that partnership with the Alzheimer's Society is so critical. Hopefully we can put more processes in place to help identify individuals who are on these meds and get them off them and onto safer alternatives. Absolutely. Okay, so so earlier in the interview, you, you made the point that, you know, a real issue for seniors is that they are on, would you say, on average, more than five medications? Yeah, um, two-thirds are on five or more prescriptions, yeah. Right. So what happens if some of these five that they're on are the type that are create a higher risk for Alzheimer's or dementia? So, like, if you're taking multiple drugs... Does that create a multiple of your chances of developing either Alzheimer's disease or dementia? Absolutely. The more you take of them, the more it can compound and increase the risk of developing dementia over time or rapidly progress the symptoms of dementia even more. So that's why it's important for us to look at the what meds you're on a lot more and suggest more alternatives that don't, unfortunately, have such an effect on our cognition long term. So there's a lot of examples. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, like they, they span all classes of drugs. Here's one that's a particular eye uh, opening. Even over-the-counter medications can have, be in this class of anticholinergics. So, Jamie, do you know what diamond hydronate, diphenhydramine, and doxylamine are? Uh, no, I do not. <laughs> so those are the generic names for Gravol, Benadryl, and uh, doxylamine is an antihistamine that's in a lot of over-the-counter formulations like NyQuil, right? There are antihistamines that are often used in preparations for sleep. So Tylenol PM has an antihistamine in it. It's first-generation antihistamines that can make us drowsy, but they uh, temporarily for cold. But they lose their ability to help us out for sleep, believe it or not. Our body gets used to them in as little as three days to one week. So they're, they're great for cold medications, but temporarily for a few days. But the issue is a lot of uh, individuals out in the community take those on a daily basis to help them fall asleep. They'll pop a gravel tablet to help them fall asleep. In them. And what they do is they're atrocious. They're one of the worst anticholinergic drugs out there that cause all those side effects, the dry eye, the dry mouth. But they can have a drastic effect, even increase in restless leg syndrome, but rob us of that dream sleep, that sleep quality, which can over, over a period of time, as we mentioned, can lead towards more dementia. There's so many different classes of meds, and actually most sleep medications, any of the sleep hypnotics, the benzodiazepines, without going into those in depth, they're atrocious. They do all of that, and they can even leave people in a stupor the next day and cause amnesia over time. So there's all these classes of drugs, and we need to help identify them. But what's really important to know is, you know, I'll keep on saying this is a blanket statement, you know, always, you have to do this under the guidance of your doctor and your pharmacist team. Do not drop them cold turkey, because sometimes it can take you, for even like the sleep hypnotics, the benzodiazepines, it can take you six months to a year to come off them safely. So you have to do that on the guidance of your pharmacist. But we, we're at a point in healthcare knowing this, that we need to pivot towards helping to improve people's health by now when you ha- once you have a chronic condition, we need to help manage that chronic condition in the long haul, which as our bodies change and age over time, our abilities to break up drugs 
and get them out of our body, even absorb them. The amount of drugs that go into our brain and can affect our cognition and sleep changes over time. As our bodies change, our medications and their doses have to change too. Often that means we have to lower the dose over time, but then ultimately, once we reach, reach a certain age, and we have to switch them to safer alternatives as well. Okay, a lot of food for thought. Uh, yeah. I know for a lot of the listeners, their first step is, is going to be to take a look at their medicine cabinet, and then they're going to want to have a look at the beers list or some resource. Where would you direct people if they want to learn more about this issue? I would suggest, because it, it sounds kind of complicated, and there's a lot of different drugs. A lot of people, unfortunately, the education's not there with medications. Our system hasn't done a great job at doing that. It's speak to your pharmacist. Particularly if you have a clinical pharmacist, you can bring into your circle of care. As we're in the community, a lot of gaps in our healthcare system. Finding a good clinical pharmacist can help you out to personalize your meds is so crucial. And that is what we really specialize and do at the Health Depot Pharmacy. We're a clinical pharmacy that can tap into even e-health records, the same ones that uh, hospitals use, that they can access all their patients' blood work, doctor support, special supports, and work together with your doctors to personalize doses and to find the right medication, the right dose for you. And it's exciting that we're now part of the not-for-profit uh, Green Shield family now. So, so what our clinical pharmacists are doing, believe it or not, is we're donating our time to everyone to provide a free no-obligation consultation to go over your medications and make recommendations on what are potentially problematic ones that might need to be changed. And if you agree, we can help work together with you and your doctor to switch you off those bad medications and onto much safer alternatives. Fantastic. Great information today, Andy. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Jamie, as always. For more discussions and articles about health and wellness, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss excitotoxicity on The Tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. David Nelson is invited faculty at the Nova Institute for Health of People, Places, and Planet, located in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, is a health food retail and wellness services business owner. He's written numerous academic articles, and his most recent establishes the importance of the acid-alkaline balance of the foods we eat. He also lives 
in Woodstock with his family. Welcome back to the show, David. How you doing? Not too bad, Jamie. Not too bad at all. Thanks for having me back on uh, the show. It's always wonderful to be here. You ask great questions, so I'm excited about this one. Yeah, this is a topic that we have absolutely never covered before. What are excitotoxins and where can they be found? Yeah, that's, uh, so excitotoxins are things that at the end of the day, they make food taste better in a lot of ways. So they are arousing chemicals for the brain. But the problem is you'll see a little bit of a, an end on there that doesn't look so good. Toxins, they are excitotoxins. And if you break the word in two, they're substances. Usually things like, uh, usually excitotoxins come with an amino acid. So glutamate, aspartate, stuff like that. And they overstimulate uh, and damage nerve cells. So where that word comes from is excitation and toxic. So it's toxic excitation. And those excitotoxins, we find them sometimes naturally in food like, you know, aged cheese or soya sauce or whatever. Processed meats have it in too. And then other additives that your audience is going to recognize like monosodium glutamate and aspartame, for example. So excitotoxins are things that excite neurons, unfortunately, to death. Then so how do these excitotoxins contribute to the development of, I guess, neurological disorders? I guess, is that what you're talking about? Or things in the nervous system? It's a great question. So what happens, I want to dial it back just for a second and just remind people that excitotoxins are not found in real food. They're only found in ultra-processed food. So it's very important to note that if you're eating real food, you're really going to have a very low exposure to excitotoxins, like, like I said before, HG, soy sauce, and stuff. Excitotoxins that contribute to the development of neurological disorders, it's the excitotoxins and the ingestion of ultra-processed food. So l- let me go into this a little bit. Yeah. Excitotoxins overstimulate nerve cells. How do they do that? Well, they bind to very specific receptors. So these receptors have names like NMDA and AMPA. So I won't go into what they mean, but what happens when you dock on, let's say, an NMDA receptor, you get an influx of calcium ions into the cell, and we know that into the neuron, and we know that calcium is important for things called action potential in neurons. This excessive calcium triggers a series of events, and those series of events leads to the cell death. It leads to damaging the neuron and potentially neuronal death. And I want to say here, this is implicated in things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and multiple sclerosis, MS, neurological diseases. But that's not to say that those excitotoxins cause those things. They don't, but they're involved. And that's the important point. I want to circle back a bit because I'm not sure I understand. Mm. You mentioned soy sauce, and I think you said aged cheese. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that the excitotoxins in those types of products are not as bad for us uh, as opposed to the additives, or is it the same? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. And so the answer is that's probably unknown, but I think that it's a volume issue. Okay. So when you eat ultra-processed food, you're literally inundated with excitotoxins from everywhere. So even if it doesn't say monosodium glutamate, the difficulty of the whole thing is that there are things that masquerade as excitotoxins, but we don't know what they're called, right? There are things like hydrolyzed vegetable protein, autolyzed yeast extract, sodium caseinate, aspartic acid, disodium guanolate, disodium um, inocyanate. Those things all are excitotoxic in nature. And what it does 
is when they dock on those neuron receptors, they increase the tone of the neuron. Now, if you eat real food like aged cheese, soy sauce, that's not going to happen. It's a very, very low exposure. But when you eat a boatload of processed food, you're getting this every single time. Like you open a bag of chips, it's in there. Crackers, it's in there. Anything that tastes good or they have to raise the flavor floor so you'll eat it probably has some excitotoxic chemicals in it. All right. So you've talked about how the excitotoxins impact the neurological system, mm. but you're also talking about food, mm. which means, you know, it's, it's getting into our gut. So is there a link between excitotoxins and our microbiome? Yeah. And the answer is a definitive yes. But this is really the emerging part of excitotoxin research. It turns out that the excitotoxins also create something called dysbiosis in the gut which means that they stir things up and create kind of an inflammatory condition inside of the gut, and the bacteria and the microbiome starts miscommunicating. So it looks like not only do those excitotoxins have something potentially damaging inside the body, it looks like they might be dysbiotic agents too, but it's hard to tease that apart, Jamie, to be honest, because we don't know if it's the processed food that's creating the dysbiosis or if it's the cytotoxins themselves that are creating the dysbiosis. But any way you slice it, it's definitely all related. And I have to point to the microbiome is emerging as a major intersection for mental health. And we know Kathleen Holton is the PhD discover, um, studying excitotoxins at scale, and she has a, a research grant for Gulf War Syndrome, and she knows from her research that people with Gulf War Syndrome, when they eat poor, highly processed diets or things rich in excitotoxins, experience greater issues with anxiety, depression, mental health, suicidal ideation. So there is a big mental health component here, too, and the cross-section is the microbiome. That's the new emerging part about excitotoxins. Yeah, I, I guess what's been unsaid, but I just want to clarify, is you know you're you're talking about the super processed foods because they tend to have a disproportionate amount of these additives. Is that really the connection, though? Yeah, that's the connection. And I mean, Michael Moss wrote the book a while ago called Salt, Sugar, Fat, and really what he talked about was processed food using those three ingredients kind of all the time. But the other part of that book is about the hyperpalatability of foods and that comes through using some of these chemical some of these chemical things that kind of like create a really big spike in arousal in the brain and the problem is it keeps us coming back for more and then real food doesn't taste as good so that's the other problem with excitotoxins okay so if all this is true what dietary changes can we make to reduce our exposure to the excitotoxins I don't know if you're, you know, old school, if you remember a guy by the name of Sean Cruxton, he had underground wellness, but he had a diet plan and it was called JERF, and I really loved it. It was just eat real food. So that really is the solution to reduce the exposure to excitotoxins. You limit your consumption of processed foods because they're the things that contain additives like MSG and aspartame. You want to go for fresh, whole foods. Organic products, if possible, if it fits in your budget or if you're, you have accessibility, get rid of pesticide residues. Just feed your gut microbiome a balanced, high-fiber, polyphenolic-rich diet. And that's the secret. That is what creates a really healthy and functioning microbiome. And we're finding now that that absolutely confers health in the long term. Okay, so I'll be candid with you. I had never heard 
of excitotoxins before you know you proposed uh, this topic to discuss today. So I'm I'm curious, what is the current state of research on excitotoxins, and where can we expect this to go? Well, the excitotoxin research fell off a little bit of a cliff after Russell Blaylock wrote his book there, I think it was in 2008. But that seeded a lot of ideas. Around 2012, interest started to pick up again. And by 2016 and 17, with brain science, dementia, neurological diseases, autoimmunity, gut health, microbiome, a bunch of people started to get interested in it again. And one of the people is Kathleen Holton. Spell her last name H-O-L-T-O-N. She's a PhD in in nutritional psychiatry or or mood. And um, she looks at how nutrition changes your behavior, personality, and mood. And so what her main thrust is, is looking at how processed foods, excitotoxins, a lack of fiber, stuff like that, impact people's health. And we're finding out now that some of the things that we have with adult ADHD, distractibility, and all these other things likely are related, again, to ultra-processed food and some of these arousing chemicals that are in there. So it's ongoing. It's, it's actually expanding in research. So food is getting some of the biggest research possible right now due to the microbiome. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, not a problem, Jamie. I love talking about this stuff. They feel like if you feed people properly and nourish their microbiome and their minds, we're going to have a better society. So that's why we do this. That was David Nelson. For more discussions and articles about health and wellness, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal. Proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Migraine is one of the leading causes of disability in Canada. Almost 3 million Canadians will experience a debilitating migraine uh, today. According to uh, the World Health Organization, migraines affect women twice as much as men, and a large portion of people with migraines are undiagnosed. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ian Finkelstein, Medical Director of the Toronto Headache and Pain Clinic, about what's new in migraine research and care. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Finkelstein. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So for those who don't know, what is a migraine, and how does it differ from, let's say, a regular headache, if there's such an animal? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great question, uh, and it's a uh, it's significant problem because, you know, when people talk about headache, it's a general term just describing pain in the head. Migraine is very different. 
Migraine is uh, classified as a neurological disorder, which is typified by uh, what we call a, um, a hyperexcitable brain. So headache is just but one characteristic of migraine, and these headaches tend to be moderate uh, to severe in nature, but can be associated with multiple other symptoms, such as light and sound sensitivity, nausea, vomiting, and to the point where a lot of these patients can't do what they normally do during the day. So many of the patients who have migraine have a high degree of disability, and people with just general headache clearly don't have that. So why are migraines the leading cause of disability in Canada, which is something I didn't realize? I think, you know, there are a number of reasons. Uh, One of the biggest things that we face as clinicians is that migraine in general tends to be underdiagnosed and undertreated uh, at the primary care level and even at, uh, at the specialty level in some circumstances. And as a result of that, these patients don't have an appropriate diagnosis. They don't have an appropriate treatment plan to manage their headaches. And they tend to suffer in silence uh, as a result. And so they don't go see their doctor. They end up taking too many pills from the pharmacy. Uh, and as a result, their headaches tend to get worse and worse. And uh, a lot of these patients tend to be stigmatized. And as I said, they suffer in silence. So why do migraines impact women more than men? Yeah, so the current prevalence is about three to one. So three times as many women uh, as compared to males will get migraine. And I think probably one of the most obvious factors to your listeners would be um, the hormonal factors. And uh, obviously women have different hormones than men and and would most likely uh, cause them to be more prone to migraines. Now, We also think that females have a more excitable brain, if you will, and that when they are exposed to these hormones, it tends to activate this over-excitable brain and cause this migraine cascade to occur. So, I mean, there's still a lot of research to be done, but certainly the hormonal factors and the fact that women have a more uh, hyper-excitable brain Uh, I think are are the foundation of why we see more women than men. Um, And genetic factors, obviously, if you look at uh, patients uh, coming in uh, and you speak to, um, you know, female patients, they'll often tell you that their mother or their maternal grandmother suffered from migraines. So when you talk about a hyperexcitable brain, does that have anything to do with the way the two lobes of the brain communicate? Because my understanding is women, you know, like the ability to multitask and the way they process information, which is very different than men, they tend to have more brains where the lobes are better connected. Is there a connection there or am I just conflating? No, there's not. And, uh, you know, we always have to say that, uh, you know, women's brains are better connected than, than, than males. But no, when we talk about um, a hyperexcitable brain in the migraine patient, we talk about the ability for the brain to go into this migraine cascade at a lower threshold. So in other words, if you weren't a migraine sufferer, a change in barometric pressure or a menstrual period or missing a meal wouldn't trigger a migraine. But in a migrainer who, uh, again, has a different threshold at which their brain fires will tend to be triggered by uh, these sorts of things. Why do you think migraines are so underdiagnosed? I think, you know... Migraine is, is not one of these diseases like stroke or heart where, you know, death is the ultimate uh, outcome. 
again, migrants suffer in, in silence. People often think of migraine as just being a headache, and they don't think about the disability that these patients suffer from. I mean, patients that I see, every aspect of their life uh, is affected, uh, from work to ability to, uh, to interact with their children, their spouses, perhaps if they're going to school to attend classes. So it is a huge problem. And I, I also think that, you know, primary care physicians are not giving migraine enough time. You know, they'll hear headache and they'll often give a prescription and out the patient goes. I mean, for these patients to be treated properly, they need the proper amount of education and counseling about their disease, what their triggers are, how to avoid them, and what kind of medications to take, when to take them, uh, and if need be, uh, to take preventative medications to reduce the frequency and severity of their headaches. So I'm sure you see a lot of this in your clinic. Like currently, what are you seeing in terms of trends vis-a-vis migraines? Well, you know, patients want a diagnosis. Often patients will come into my clinic and they just want to be heard. Uh, They want to tell their story. Some of the patients that come into the clinic don't even realize that they actually have migraine headaches and they've been suffering for years and years and years. So I, I think that, you know, we're, we're seeing people who still don't have a diagnosis and are not being managed uh, appropriately. I think, you know, with the advent of COVID, we see a lot of migraine patients who have become worse over time and their headaches have become more frequent and more severe and certainly more disabling. So we're starting to see uh, a lot of that as well. But with the new advent of, uh, of all these medications that we now have to treat these migraineurs, we now at least have some ability to treat them more effectively. Okay, so let's, let's talk a bit about the medications. I understand one of them was recently approved by Health Canada. Tell me if I'm getting this right. Q-Lipta, is that right? Yeah. So two medications have been approved. Q-Lipta is, is correct. Uh, that's the brand name. The generic name is Atojapant, and that is a preventative uh, medication for migraine. And the other medication, which was also approved in and around the same time, uh, is called Ubrelvi uh, or Ubrojapant, uh, and that is an acute treatment meant to take when a patient gets a migraine attack. So if we look at the class, uh, and, and if I may just sort of describe the class of the medications, we talk about the name as GPANT. And this is sort of a, a family of medications to which um, Ubrelvi and Culipta uh, belong to. And what these medications do is they block the CGRP receptor. Now, what is CGRP? CGRP is is not something new to migraine. It's been studied for many, many years, and there's lots of research behind it. And CGRP is a protein that we have in our bodies, and it's thought to play a role in the migraine cascade. Uh, And that's based on a lot of strong scientific research. So when a patient takes these medications, it blocks this CGR receptor, and by doing this, uh, it blocks the mechanisms that create a migraine headache. So we refer to these drugs um, as CGRP antagonists or CGRP blockers. So going back to your question, um, Qlipta um, is an oral uh, medication that has been uh, indicated to treat episodic migraine. So those are any patients who have 14 uh, days or less per month of headache. 
and this would be taken on a daily basis by mouth. And ultimately, the goal would be to reduce the patient's frequency and severity of their headaches, as well as any of their acute medication use and, and, and obviously their, um, their disability that's impacting their life. What are you most excited about in terms of the future of migraine treatment? I think, you know, we're now seeing medications that are, uh, are what we call designer drugs. So they are now looking at drugs that are targeting specific proteins or chemicals in the migraine cascade. And these drugs like Ubrelvi and, um, and Tulipta are just two of those types of drugs. So we're excited by having more options to give to patients, combining options to uh, treat the more difficult patients. And, you know, in the future, they are looking at different mechanisms by which uh, uh, these various proteins will uh, cause migraines to happen. And ultimately, you know, we hope for a biomarker where we can actually look at someone's blood and say, you know, they'll respond to this drug or they'll respond to that drug. And I think, you know, that will be an incredible thing for both clinicians and, and for patients alike. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Ian Finkelstein. We have to take a short break. But when we return, we'll discuss how to create a thriving workplace on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Laura Putnam is a workplace well-being expert, international public speaker, and author of Workplace Wellness That Works. That's about what CEOs are getting wrong about the future of work and how they can create a thriving workplace. Laura has shared her insight in dozens of media interviews, including New York Times, uh, USA Today, ABC, Forbes, and Good Morning Arizona, and she's here on the show today. Hey, Laura, how are you? I'm great, Jamie. Nice to be on your show. Thank you so much. So I guess, you know, this may seem like a silly question, but why should companies care if their employees are, are well? Well, first and foremost, we just have to acknowledge that this is the right thing to do. If we consider that the workplace is where the vast majority of adults are spending their waking hours, then the idea of leveraging every workplace, whether it's an in-person workplace or a remote one is a really, really good idea. 
we are as a, as a global community we're facing a crisis of uh, health and particularly mental health uh, and overall well-being and so uh, it's really important that we take action and so there's a real potential here to leverage every workplace to do that but secondly Having a workforce that is healthy and happy is also really the smart thing to do. It's not only is it um, benefiting individuals, but it's also benefiting the bottom line. So basically, you give me any metric that matters to your organization, and I will show you how it ties to well-being. So, for example, those employees who are thriving at work are 81% less likely to leave the organization. So well-being at work is essential for retention and attraction. It's also essential for safety. Those employees who are well at work, they're less likely to have an accident on the job. And then it's also essential for profitability. Three studies in a row found that those companies that are investing in comprehensive well-being actually outperform those companies that are not investing in comprehensive well-being on the stock market. Hmm. Okay, so I understand it's your view that employers don't really get to the root causes of their workers' unhappiness. What do you mean by that? And and what are some of those root causes? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, so often, you know, particularly somebody who is a well-being professional, I get these calls from organizations saying, oh, our people are burned out. Give them some tips to be more resilient. But the truth of the matter is that issues like burnout have much less to do with the individual and their capacity to be mindful or have a positive mindset or practice more yoga or do more deep breathing. And it's more about the workplace itself. So, for example, top researchers on burnout, they have identified that the top six drivers of burnout for employees has to do with the workplace itself. So it's things like work overload. It's things like perceived lack of control. It's insufficient rewards for effort. It's lack of a supportive community. It's lack of fairness. And it's also mismatched values and skills. So it's these kinds of systemic issues that every organization needs to be thinking about addressing in order to really maximize the health and happiness of their workforce. It's not just about providing individual resources for individuals. I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, no amount of yoga or mindfulness can stand up to the weight of an employee having to do the work of three or uh, an employee having to manage the toxicity of a negative boss day in and day out. Those are the kinds of issues that really need to be addressed. So if that's true, do you see corporate wellness programs as, as having benefit to workers? On one level, yes. Uh, I mean, what, one of the things that I really take as a positive is just the fact that every organization and every leader, to a certain extent, especially in the, the fallout from the pandemic, recognizes that well-being and even happiness is something that they really need to address. So that's the good news. Uh, but the, the bad news is that what you know, too many organizations are resorting to these kind of check-the-box type solutions. And so what we're seeing is that, by and large, a lot of these well-intended wellness programs are, A, 
employees aren't even bothering to, to engage with them. So on average, 80% of eligible employees are opting out of these programs. But even if they do, many of these programs are, again, not addressing those deeper systemic issues. And so employees are not necessarily any healthier or any happier because of them. And so what my work is really focused on is we really have to move beyond those check-the-box kinds of solutions and really start to get more at those root causes. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you're referencing as being sort of the root causes of the problems, I mean, I don't even know that I would classify them as wellness issues. I mean, they seem like the type of issues that have probably existed since the beginning of corporations, right? Like having a difficult boss, being overworked, right? Like, I mean, these aren't new concepts, are they? No, they're not. And that's the interesting thing. I mean, so much of what the, the research is, is uncovering, particularly coming from entities like Gallup, is that it's really just about running a, an organization efficiently and effectively and really ensuring that you have effective leaders and particularly managers. So what we're really seeing is that a lot of these well-intended wellness efforts are just solving the wrong problem. So, for example, there was a a McKinsey Health Institute global survey that came out that surveyed over 15,000 employees across 15 different countries. And what they're finding is that a lot of organizations are actually concerned about things like rising rates of mental health issues. And so they've increased their investments in these kinds of programs. But again, they're solving the wrong problem. And um, the, the, the problem really is having good managers and leaders that really address these, these deeper issues. It's not just about providing uh, individual resources. For example, uh, you know, most organizations have, have, have these employee assistance programs, but on average, less than 6% of employees actually engage with those employee assistance programs. So those are the kind of, you know, on-site counseling uh, resources. And again, those target the individuals, um, but those aren't really addressing the core issue. It's interesting. You, you mentioned having good managers and good leadership. I had read, and I, I, I can't give you the citation, but one of the, the biggest uh, sort of unintended consequences of having sort of corporations work their way through the pandemic is that there was incredible strain put on the management class because they were dealing with so many issues of health and wellness, for example, of their employees, and were often sort of being asked to deal with issues that you know might typically have been dealt with by HR or by wellness experts, but they were sort of managing sort of the anxieties of everybody who either had to work from home or were being laid off or this or that. Is that something that you've come across? Yeah, even spot on. I mean, I think about managers a lot as like teachers. (laughs) So, you know, often teachers are disempowered within the system of of the school. um, And yet they play such an outsized role on the impact on on the children that they're teaching. So uh, not to say that employees are children, but, uh, you know, managers really hold the key when it comes to the well-being of their team. I mean, for example, there was a frightening study that came out of Karolinska Institute in Sweden finding that if you have a toxic boss, your chances of having a heart attack, not only today, but 10 years out, dramatically increases. 
So when we hear people joking about how their boss is killing them, they actually kind of mean it. And and hmm. so, but to just blame the manager, I mean, the problem is that managers, I think that they honestly do care, but they're just not given the adequate resources and the adequate training to even know what to do and to and, and, and also to understand just how much their actions impact their their team members in a positive or a negative way. So for example, for every hour that a manager engages in after hours email time, roughly translates into an added twenty minutes of after hours email time for their team members. And so you know, these managers are sending these signals to their team members. And it's just so often they're just not aware of how much those signals are either positively or negatively impacting their team members. So if if the team members see their manager engaging in self-care, then guess what? They're likely to do the same. Or if team members see that their manager never sends after-hours emails, emails, then they're likely to, you know, turn off their devices at night as well. We have time for one last question, and that is, you know, maybe maybe there's one or two, or maybe there's like one great idea that you've come across. But what is the best idea uh, that you've seen that would benefit the wellness of, of workers sort of generally? I think that we shift our thinking from designing programs that will address well-being to really thinking more about the way the work gets done. And so, uh, so often I see a fundamental mismatch between the, the well-intended wellness programs that are offered and then the, the larger culture. And so what I would really, the number one thing that organizations can do is to ironically focus less on the individual and more on the culture and the environment within which the individual operates. And so the more that the individual just simply steps into a system that maximizes employee well-being, the better. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Sandy Donnell, David Nelson, Dr. Ian Finkelstein, and Laura Putnam. Thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The March-April issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.